hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Are you prepared for the fourth industrial revolution? You're probably saying, yeah, sure, I can work an iPhone like no one else and I'm the fastest buyer on Amazon. Give me more technology and less work, please. But there's more to industrial revolutions than technological and economic changes, as previous revolutions have shown us, and as Paul Donovan, chief economist for UBS, outlines in his book, Profit and Prejudice, The Luddites of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. You're listening to Queer Money episode number 252, and we're talking with Paul Donovan about his book, Profit and Prejudice. Paul warns that industrial revolutions create changes that many folks aren't prepared for or are happy about, so they fight it, like the original Luddites of the first industrial revolution. And they often blame the cause of those changes on marginalized communities like immigrants, minority religions, people who are different, and quite possibly with this fourth industrial revolution, the LGBTQ community. Preparing for this next industrial revolution and the possible prejudices that may come our way is something every queer person should pay attention to. Paul Donovan's the Managing Director and Chief Economist for UBS Global Wealth Management and is responsible for formulating and presenting views on economics and policy. And he spent many years studying the opportunities and challenges that come with industrial progress. This is an informative and cautionary episode that every LGBTQ person and ally should hear. We make the Queer Money Podcast for you, so please email your money questions to questions at debtfreeguys.com or post them in the Queer Money Facebook group, and we may answer your question in an upcoming episode. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. This podcast is sponsored by Capital One. Capital One is redesigning the banking experience by offering simple, straightforward, and seamless ways for you to bank from almost anywhere. So banking fits into your life, not the other way around. Queer Money is being brought to you in part by the five building blocks of a happy gay life. Join the growing community of happy, healthy, and wealthy gay men who love their lives inside and out. Get your free copy of the five building blocks of a happy gay life at debtfreeguys.com forward slash happy. So welcome, Paul Donovan, to the Queer Money Podcast. We're excited to finally have you on the show. Well, thank you very much for having on, guys. It's a it's a real honor. Yeah, like I, like I said before, we actually started the recording. I'm delighted by this this book. There's so much information in here. Um, there's actually so much LGBTQ history in here that I wasn't aware of. But even beyond that, there's so much. Uh, there's a wealth of information. I think anybody would be well served by taking a look at your book. It's a uh, it's quite enjoyable, and you are able to distill some what some would say is very boring history into very interesting <laughs> history and tie it back to the whole premise of, of your of your book. Thank you. It's uh, it, it, it was fun to write most of the time. You know, occasionally, you're, <laughs> I'm tearing my my small amount of remaining hair out and and cursing that I ever started it. But actually, there's so much about you know, the issues around prejudice and economics and and so on over the last 300 years that the real problem for me was cutting out stuff just to make it into into a single volume. Editing is hard. <laughs> yeah, always, always. It's also nice that we're, uh, I think this is the first 
true international guests that we have had on the podcast, where we're getting a perspective that's not just the US perspective. I'll also add just because of your accent, it adds a level of maturity and <laughs> to everything the, sounds to the show. so much more credible when it's said in a British accent. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> You'd be surprised. See, even how- you know how to say it better than I do. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many times I speak in uh, with a British accent to try to get my way with David <laughs> to try to sound a little more sophisticated. But uh, let's back to the topic at hand. So uh, the premise of your book is that we are heading into or have maybe even already started uh, entering the fourth industrial revolution, and that each industrial revolution sort of opens up new ways and risks of, of prejudices. And so your, your book is, is talking about how we're heading into the fourth industrial revolution with automation and technology, and that what uh, especially marginalized communities should look out for. So for the sake of our listeners, would you mind sharing what your definition of the fourth industrial revolution? Sure, of course. This is a you know, central place to start. So most people, when you say the Industrial Revolution, they think of the of the first revolution, which was in the late 1700s in the UK, and that was all about automation and steam power. And then the second Industrial Revolution, which was really from the 1870s to the 1920s, that was about electricity and the factory system coming in. And then the third Industrial Revolution, which was the 1970s, was about computer power and uh, the new technology and, and innovation that came through there. Now, the fourth industrial revolution is around a lot of structural change in the economy. So, so quite a lot of this is about communication, the democratization of communication, uh, the, the possibilities that the internet is opening up, it's robotics, it's artificial intelligence, it's automation. And it's transforming the way that the world works. I mean, just think about how our lives have been turned upside down over the last year with the pandemic, but how important technology has been in facilitating those changes in where we work, how we work, what we consume, how we consume. All of this, this structural upheaval is the fourth industrial revolution. Gotcha. And it might be important to also start this conversation off by describing who the, the Luddites were, um, because we've seen them since the versions of them have popped up throughout history as we've entered into different industrial revolutions. Yeah, so the, the Luddites were a group in Britain who sort of emerged in the late 1700s. And they, were, they weren't a coherent group in in. A conventional sense. They were different regional groups that were protesting about the mechanization that was going on. So a lot of them were in the textile industry, and these had been skilled workers who saw machines coming in and taking their jobs. And so they responded by factories attacking the machines that they saw as taking away their livelihood, but also, of course, attacking individuals, so attacking the Presbyterians, the, um, the the Protestant religious group in the north of England. We had anti-Catholic riots, the, the, the famous Gordon riots in London, because they were also blaming these groups for taking away their livelihood. Now, what was unusual about this, because the, the, the British had had plenty of riots and rebellions and revolts in the past. I mean, it's, it's a pastime in, in the county of Kent. <laughs> uh, you know, they do it every couple of years. But what was so unusual was that this group had branding. 
And it was branding because they were branded um, uh, Luddites after General Ludd or King Ludd, this mythical figure who was issuing these proclamations against evil machines and evil Presbyterians and evil Catholics and so on and so forth. And the branding worked and fueled this this sense of a, of a national movement, even though it really wasn't, because you'd had an increase in literacy and you'd had an increase in communication, pamphlets the sort of the Twitter of their day, were distributing this propaganda all around the country. So an uprising that might start in in the north of England could shift to the south of England with very similar concepts and so forth, as the communication allowed this disparate group of people to unify against what they saw as a common enemy. Gotcha. You talk a lot in the book about one of the, the, the nucleuses of, of why people fight these industrial revolutions is because of this concept of, of loss aversion. But what's striking to me is that we're now heading into our fourth industrial revolution. And we haven't learned from history that, yes, there are some fluctuations. Yes, there's some uh, discomfort in that transition. But there's always some folks who are just clinging on to the old at the risk of being able to evolve into the future. Why do you think we struggle with that transition? And is there anything that we can even do from that to, to sort of get over that a little bit more easily? There's a lot of different issues here. I think heading the list is the most dreaded phase in the economics profession. This time it's different. (laughs) And we're hearing that now. That yes, we know in the past living standards have improved, but this time it's different. This time our robot overlords are going to you know take away all prosperity and there's going to be five billionaires who who get all of the benefit and everybody else is going to be living in abject poverty, for example. Now this is nonsense, but People do believe that somehow their experience is different from that of history. But there are genuine concerns here as well, because it's all very well saying, yes, in the fullness of time, we're going to be better off. The fourth industrial revolution will raise living standards. It will do enormous benefit for the environment. I mean, this, this is about efficiency, about using resources more effectively. We will be improving health, we'll be improving education, improving standards of living, Absolutely. But in time. And the problem is for an individual telling them that everything's going to be great in 20 years' time, but we're terribly sorry, you're going to lose your job. They're not going to reconcile me promising that things are going to get better in 20 years with the certainty that an economist has with the fact that their personal circumstances are going to be a lot worse. Um, And the other thing that comes out of this, of course, which is what always happens when you get this upheaval, it's not just that your circumstances are are, are potentially going to get worse, that you might lose your job or that your, your job is going to have lower status in the future. No, what's really bad here is that your status is going down, but your next door neighbor's status is going up. And that's what really creates the resentment and the animosity. It's not just that you've got an absolute decline in living standards. It's that your living standards are declining when other people's are clearly improving. I think that's the the reason why so often when we see in elections such a focus on the economy, because the politicians want to talk to the individuals who are feeling the loss or the need or the lack because they're the most likely the ones who are going to go out and vote out the person that they're 
challenging, right? And I think that that we can easily understand that concept because all of us, whenever we look at anything, we look at it through our own lens rather than the lens of what it's like for everyone. Well, absolutely. And the loss thing invokes enormous passions. This is the concept of loss aversion, which is a a behavioral economics concept, which is basically, if you lose a dollar, you feel three times as bad as you would benefit from gaining a dollar. So loss is about three times as as negative as a as, as a gain is positive. Mm-hmm. It's an ancient behavioral concept. I mean, you know, it's essentially we run away from the saber-toothed tiger three times as fast as we run towards food. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's that sort of basic primal instinct. But what I that means that. is that when we <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> depends on the food, I suppose. Uh, a nice glass of red wine that that may be a different issue. Um, but What you've got here, of course, is a situation where there is loss. There's absolutely loss. And I don't want to diminish that. And it's very, very traumatic to go through. But people feel even more fired up and even more passionate about it. Mm -hmm. And of course, politicians tap into that. Because what you want as a politician, you want people to turn out and vote. And this is always the problem with American elections, you're getting you guys out into the polling booths (laughs) and the the side which, which can invoke the passion which actually gets people out voting. That's what really motivates. And of course, politicians are going to tap into this. But there are other aspects of this as well, that when we start to look at the way in which prejudice works with politics, of course, one of the things that prejudice does is, is you're saying, well, it's not your fault you've lost your job. It's the fault of that minority group. It's that ethnic group, or it's that immigrant that's taken your job away, or it's God's wrath because we have marriage equality or whatever nonsense you're going to come up with. doesn't matter. But you're saying it's not your fault. Of course, people love to hear that it's not their fault. And you're going further than that. Not only are you saying it's not your fault, but you're saying you're better than that group of people. And that gives you a sense of superiority. And of course, you're going to love to hear that. And it also very often gives you a sense of community. You feel that you're part of an exclusive little club, that you're better than this other group. And so on so many levels, the appeal of prejudice in times of economic change and turmoil, I mean, it's completely wrong, but it's very understandable. Absolutely. And it would seem to me that government could play a central role in helping make this transition amicable for everyone involved. But from what I'm hearing from you, it seems like politicians are more concerned about getting voted or voting other people out than they are actually about helping with that transition of the industrial revolutions. Yes, I think we can be too cynical about this. I think there are politicians who genuinely want to help society, genuinely want to move things forwards. But there is also political opportunism, what I call scapegoat economics. You know, it's not my fault I lost my job, it's yours. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the prejudice politics are inevitably going to be attractive, and, and it's just part of the political process. But there are also, I think, limits on what politicians can do, particularly in the short term. So a lot of people say, well, you know, it's about inequality. We need to improve social security. We need to improve welfare. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. I mean, from a a humanitarian point of view and from an economic point of view, there are benefits here. But what we've got to remember is that a lot of what we're talking about here is a loss of social status. 
it's it's not just the fact that your income's going down and your neighbor's income's going up. It's that you feel your social status is going down when your neighbor's social status is going up. Mm-hmm. And go back to the original Luddites, the weavers back in the 1760s and 1770s. They weren't losing their jobs. It's just that their jobs had gone from high-skilled to low-skilled overnight. And, and that's what they resented. Now, here's the problem. If you hand somebody money, that doesn't restore their social status. And the loss of social status is what tends to feed the prejudice politics, the populism, extremism, whatever you want to call it. That tends to be the the driver there. It's not the relative income loss. And so that's a constraint on what politicians can do, because it's not just a, a question of signing a check. They've actually got to try and construct social policies, which will help people transition to new roles, to to maintain social status, to change their perception on life. And that's a lot more complicated to do, and it takes time. And I think it's probably easier for folks who at one time had the social status versus the groups that have traditionally had prejudice against them, having this added on top of it. Yes, uh, of course, because it's privilege. If if you've had a life of of social status where life has been relatively easy, then of course that loss becomes a a, a very sudden shock, and inevitably you, you're you're going to to look for someone to blame for that loss, and you tend to look down. I mean, it's always easier to punch down than punch up. In that sense, yeah. and that's exactly you know, what we what we tend to see, and um, we've seen throughout history. And I, in the book, I use an example from uh, my own family that my family were dock workers in East London, so very low skilled uh, labouring class. And in the 1930s, so my grandparents' generation, there was obviously the the Great Depression, the global trade collapsed, dock workers were just losing jobs, and social status was was enormously wrapped up into this it was it was you know, very evident if if you were losing social status in this situation so my grandmother uh, this is appropriate to you guys my grandmother had a terrible fear of debt throughout her entire life and it was born out of this experience from the 1930s because if you didn't have income coming in if you'd lost your job then you had to go and see uncle yeah. And what that meant was you would go to the pawn shop. Uh, uncle was the local pawnbroker beyond the corner of the street, and you would take your household possessions. You would take your father's suit. You would take the household china down and try and get a loan in order to be able to eat. And of course, this was very public. You're marching along the street, carrying your household possessions. Everyone knows what you're doing. Everyone knows where you're going. Everyone knows that your status is diminishing. So this created this enormous sense of of loss of status. And in that environment, according to family legend, some of my great uncles turned to fascism, which in the UK was remarkable. I mean, fascism was never very big in the UK. But the the fascist leader, Sir Oswald Mosley, was saying to people, it's not your fault that you're in this hardship. It's not your fault that you're losing social status. It's the fault of the Jewish immigrants. Right. And that gave this reassurance to this group and and the sense of community that they were a superior group. Really, they were, and they were bonded together. They all wore black shirts as a as a signal of being part of the fascist movement. And you blame this, this minority group. And of course, you're offered this seductively simple solution. If we just get rid of this minority group, uh, you know, if we ban immigration, which is what Mosley was suggesting, then 
everything will go back to the way it was. It's complete nonsense. But I can understand if I sort of put myself in the position of my great uncles, I can understand why they would be seduced by that story. Right. right. And we're seeing, you know, we've, we've, the Americans have lived this for the last four years, right? We had someone who sold people on making America great again, because apparently it suddenly wasn't great. And it's predominantly the fault of whatever immigrants were trying to come into our country. Let's build a wall and keep them out. We'll all get better then. Well, it's, it's, it's what we call restorative nostalgia. Yes, um, yes. You know, because you, you're, you're selling this story that, that things were wonderful in the past and we just need to restore the past. And how do we restore the past? Well, we get rid of this group or that group or we turn back things that have changed. So this is something for, for our community, the LGBTQ plus community, of course, that, well, you know, marriage equality has made things horribly wrong or you know, we've we've been pursuing uh, you know, far too much of the woke agenda. If we just go back to the way things were, you know, it'll be fantastic. It's restorative nostalgia right there. And absolutely, it's complete nonsense. But again, if people have suffered as a result of change, you can understand why they want to go back to the past and why they uh, you know, create this mythical golden age of the past, mm-hmm. because it, it's comforting to think, well, we could go back to that and everything would be fantastic. You know, it, it's it's a very understandable reaction, but you know, restorative nostalgia is a is a terrible thing. Interestingly, nostalgia originally was treated as a mental illness um, <laughs> really? when it when it first originated in the in the 18th century. It was classified as a mental illness. Wow, that's that's very interesting. So. Maybe we could talk a little bit about why it is that we have this restorative nostalgia. We look back and we think things are are better or were better then. And maybe we've already kind of addressed this. But when we look at the macro view of it, things actually haven't gotten better. I think it, on page 85 of the book, you talk about how Today, roughly 10% of the world lives in poverty versus 44% of the world living in poverty in 1981. So we're looking at less than 40 years ago, a couple of generations, the world as a whole has really risen out of poverty, but there is this focus on poverty still. And we want to go back to these time periods. Is it is it because that the personal impact, my life has not improved that much, but other people's has? Yes. So it's it's a mix of things. So as I was saying earlier on, you've got to remember that it's it's not just about, you know, is your life better or worse? It's is your life better or worse relative to those around you? So if you're seeing people improve their living standards and you feel that your living standards are not going up, that of itself uh, can be a, a, a huge problem. And you think, the world as a whole is a lot worse as a result. And here, I mean, this is an example of where the technology of the fourth industrial revolution is making things worse. I mean, technology is not a, you know, a universal positive. So you know, the fact that you, you go onto Instagram and, and you see you know, everyone else leading their best lives and you know, uh, having fantastic restaurant meals and going on these wonderful holidays and you're sat at home with baked beans on toast again. <laughs> That's that sort of comparison makes you feel bad. The fact that you've got you know four slices of toast rather than the two slices of toast you had ten years ago that doesn't really register in these circumstances. Right. Uh, and so that gives you this sort of 
um, uh, this sense that things are going badly wrong because you're you're judging by the standards of people around you. A lot of the the improvements that we've been seeing are global, and so it's not just something that you're necessarily experiencing, but it's it's people outside of your your immediate neighbourhood. So it's not particularly visible that living standards are being improving. Gotcha. And then over the last few years, or over the last I suppose twenty years, we've also had this very peculiar roller coaster. And you know, talking to Americans, you you are very well aware of this, of course, because it's all about credit. Oh, yeah. Credit is a is a wonderful institution because credit allows us to buy things we don't need with money we don't have. <laughs> but what that does is create the credit illusion. You know, we believe our standard of living is a lot higher than it actually is because we're using credit to buy stuff. And stuff, you know, to quote Madonna, we're living in a material world. <laughs> stuff is what judges our standard of living. So your neighbor's got a new car, you've got a new car. Fantastic. We've got equality of living standards. Your neighbor paid cash, you paid on credit, but don't worry about the details like that. It's all about the fact that you've you've got the possession. But then, of course, with the global financial crisis after 2008, for many people, the credit suddenly stops. Now, all of a sudden, your you know, neighbor has got a new car and you're still driving the same secondhand Daihatsu you've been driving for the last 15 years. I speak from personal experience. And <laughs> immediately, you get that, that a very, very abrupt realization that the world's moving on and you've been left behind. Absolutely. Uh, and even though the credit illusion was an illusion, it was a bubble, the fact that that bubble burst doesn't make you feel any better. And it makes you look back to you know, the artificial life that you were leading, fueled by credit card debt or whatever it was in the past, and think life was so much better then. And that, again, contributes to this, this particular problem and this failure to recognize you know, that things are actually getting better over, over a long period of time. You don't recognize that because you've been living a dream under the credit illusion. Right. Yeah, I have to say, I think that was, to me, I, there was a lot of great information in the book, but being a, one of the debt-free guys, I had never put credit in that sort of, uh, through uh, looked at it through that sort of lens in that it sort of masked the wealth disparity because credit, especially in the United States today, is, is so easy. Um, you almost don't know, you can't really tell from one neighbor to the next who has a job and who doesn't, or who, ha who who's living on a six-figure salary relative to a, a low five-figure salary. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's something because we we are again, particularly in you know in the world of camera phones and Instagram and all the rest of it. You know, there is this emphasis on material possession as being the defining characteristic of your living standard. And you know, never mind if like Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman, you know, you're you're living constantly on the edge and you know running in the hamster wheel just to just to maintain the minimum monthly payment on your debt bills. That's not what you focus on. You focus on there's a new car in the driveway, um, right. uh, and that's you know a, a problem. It, it is a challenge. Exactly, and I think that this is something that John and I have talked about because of partly because I think it was personal experience, but also we see it on a regular basis in the queer community, but especially with gay men. This this lust for showing their success through these various outward displays, the, the, the clothing, the vacations, the cars, the homes, all of these things are great ways of showing, showing to everyone, I'm good. I'm good enough to be your friend. 
I'm good enough to be the person that everybody wants to be around because I have all this stuff to had all these great experiences, but is it all just a facade? Yes, I mean, there's there's a a, a lot of theory about uh, you know, why this happens and the best little boy in the world syndrome that because growing up, you know that you're different and particularly those of us of a certain age, there's this fear about you know, rejection from the family and, and so on, perhaps more so than, than with the younger generations. You feel you need to be better than everything. You need to strive. You need to, to demonstrate that you are you know, the, the very best that you can be, the best little boy in the world, mm-hmm. in order to win approval. And that striving to to demonstrate that you are a success can very often, of course, lead to indebtedness and, and people saying, well, you know, never mind, I just need to demonstrate this has got to be the perfect party or the perfect holiday or you know, the perfectly decorated apartment or whatever it is. And that comes out of, I think, a lot of the, you know, the social pressures and the background and, and so on. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Capital One's checking and savings accounts have no fees and no minimums. And with one of the best saving rates in America, you can rest easy watching your money grow with no fees to bring you down. You can open an account in about five minutes, which means you are only about five minutes away from getting your savings to grow with one of the nation's best rates. So it it seems to me like we are on this, based on your definition of where the fourth industrial revolution is starting, we're on this precipice right now, and we're looking over at either the opportunity to fly or the opportunity to fall to our death, right? And I guess that's kind of extremes, right? We will either soar because we take advantage of the opportunities or we will go into despair because we are getting left behind. If the blame for these kinds of changes often shifts towards minority communities, and like you've said, we've seen this happen in the past, and our queer community has become more and more visible, And I would say that, especially because of gay men, we have become more and more visible about being fabulous by the display of our means of life. Do we run the risk as a community being the ones that get a lot of the blame as this industrial revolution moves in? And what, what do we do? How do we protect ourselves? How should we be tiptoeing through this whole idea of the change is coming? So this is you know, a good news, bad news situation. You know, not to be an economist on the one hand, on the other hand about it, but <laughs> I mean, this is both a positive and a negative situation. So the negative is, as you say, that the queer community has become more visible in the recent past, is therefore potentially the the subject of uh, attack um, from those who are looking to be prejudiced. I was astonished when I came across this. A US Supreme Court judge in a minority, fortunately, minority ruling, talking about the homosexual agenda to you know, take over culture in the United States as as if this was a real thing. I mean, it's you know, it's astonishing how easy it is you can slip into this. And this was this century. This is a twenty first century U.S. Supreme Court judge. It's it's just astounding. However, alongside that negative, alongside the fact that yes, along with other minority groups, 
the LGBTQ plus community is going to you know, run the risk of prejudice, there are reasons to be positive. Because to be prejudiced, you have to believe that the target group is somehow less than you. And very often you 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 have to dehumanize the target group you know, to make them a subject of prejudice. And this goes on throughout history, going back to the first industrial revolution when in in Britain, you know, the Catholics were dehumanized. They were seen as, you know, barbaric and, and somehow evil and, and exploiting honest Protestants and so on and so forth. And, and with horrendous consequences in the second uh, industrial revolution with uh, the Jewish community, there was not quite dehumanizing, but certainly a denigration of women in the 1960s and the 1970s. You, their minds don't work the right way. They don't work the same way as men do. And you know, that was an attempt to push women out of the out of the workforce. And even today, I mean, if you take my initials, PD, you know, I, I never use my initials in France because PD in France is slang for gay. It's slang for pedophile. Uh, and that's you know, a, an example of dehumanizing. The good news is that what is happening now with the increase in visibility of our community and other communities, with things like this podcast, you are understanding that these other groups are not actually any different to you. They're not less than, they're not dehumanized groups. And you understand these groups a lot better. And particularly with things like social media, you have the opportunity to form uh, virtual friendships with people you may never, ever come across in normal day-to-day life. And that allows you to understand that these people are not less than, that in many ways, just the same as you. So you know, here we are having a conversation uh, across the Atlantic. Now, in my day-to-day life in rural Wiltshire in the west of England, I don't come across a great many Americans. You know, I might end up thinking that Americans are somehow less than British because you, know, you don't understand the rules of cricket for a start, which is a problem. And <laughs> by God, you can't make a decent cup of tea. But... <laughs> By having these conversations, by listening to your podcast and getting to know you through that over time, you know, you, you form a, a virtual friendship. It's called parasocial contact. And, and so I realized that actually you guys are just like me in many ways, though you still can't make a cup of tea. And therefore, you, know, you, you move to fight that prejudice. So there is bad news here. Um, and the changes are going to lead to an increase in prejudice. But I would argue that at the same time, we are also increasing the weapons at our disposal to fight against that prejudice that's the good news from this yeah and it sounds like we we need to that's one of the things we need to do is make sure we're using these as weapons at our disposal for the benefit of not only ourselves but our community so that we can weather this whereas we may be using this, these as just traps for whatever you want to say, idle <laughs> scroll holding. <laughs> well, no, absolutely. I th- but I think that the, that we are seeing progress. I mean, if you look at the GLAAD report, for example, about the visibility of the LGBTQ plus community in media, I mean, that has improved dramatically. And that's partly because the changes of the fourth industrial revolution have democratized media to such an extent. I mean, think about the uh, the television series Eastsiders. Can you imagine a network 
uh, television network putting on something like Eastsiders 15 years ago? Of course not. They would have never taken that risk. But what you end up with is something which was started on YouTube with crowdfunding. I mean, you know, this is just you know, a, a fourth industrial revolution all over. And then it's picked up by Netflix as a streaming service. And it's a, it's a great success. And that increases visibility. It increases understanding about the community. Fantastic. Things like your your podcast, where it's not just you know people listening to you on their mobile devices or, or whatever, um, but they also have the ability to interact in the comment section and through discussions and emails and so on, and that forms a greater understanding and a greater community, and that is something which. You know, I, we should not underestimate that the impact that this can have over time in changing people's opinions, you know, a little bit at a time maybe, but by by creating that understanding of different communities and differences that exist, we do do significant progress in tackling the, the, the underlying causes of prejudice. So I think... If we assume that you're correct, that the LGBT community will be a target of prejudice as we enter into the next industrial revolution, and I think a lot of LGBTQ folks will say, well, that's not anathema to anything I've experienced in the past, so that's a logical consequence of, 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 of the future. But you outline six ways that we can challenge that as a society as a whole, but we could probably apply this as well to LGBTQ people. You talk about breaking down education in actually two parts, telling stories, challenging prejudice, and then also engaging in contact and, and working on quotas. Um, can you extrapolate a little bit on on that and how the community might be able to use those resources, similarly to like what we're doing with the podcast maybe, but maybe as well uh, other options? Absolutely. So when we're talking about education, there's, there's essentially two issues here about about the value of education. I'm a huge fan of the value of education. I mean, it transformed my life, first generation to go to university. My father, interestingly, was the second person in our family to go to university. He went to university <laughs> nice. after he retired and absolutely loved it. So the first thing is, is just educating ourselves about other groups because that's how we avoid the dehumanizing problems and, and we, we get greater understanding. But the second thing is about education as a mechanism for creating flexibility. Because the, the thing is, in a world of change, if you are going to manage your future effectively, you need to be able to change with the circumstances. So you need the right sort of education. You need to be educated in a way which enables you to adapt as changes come along. So that, I think, is, is going to be particularly significant over time. Uh, challenging prejudice, I think, is going to be very, very significant. The process of challenging, I think, has to be done quite carefully. You're not going to convert somebody overnight to your point of view necessarily. Uh, and someone I interviewed for the book, Erica Karp, who's a, a financier in uh, in New York, has this this great phrase. I, I repeat this every time I get the chance. She says she wants to make people just a little bit uncomfortable. And I think that summarizes what you need to do so well. You don't want people to feel really uncomfortable because then the barriers will come up and they'll be defensive and they'll be reacting against you. But if you make somebody feel a little bit uncomfortable, that means they're questioning their innate prejudices, their, you know, their unconscious bias. We all have this. Everybody's prejudiced. And if you're forced to question yourself a little bit, feel a little bit uncomfortable, that is absolutely fantastic as, as a way of dealing with this. 
in terms of, of telling stories, this, I think, is very powerful. And this is an area, my profession, the economics profession, we've got this badly wrong in the past. The rise of mathematical economics from the, the 1970s and Paul Samuelson has done us a lot of disservice. People relate to stories. They empathize. They understand stories. It makes people realize the damage that prejudice can do. And this is one of the things around the Obergefell case that the plaintiffs there were chosen because their stories were so compelling. These were right. people who were in love, who wanted to, to have marriage equality. And it was perfectly relatable to the justices. And it was a, a narrative which really sold it. So I think we need to be a lot better about telling our story, telling you, going out and, and saying, you know, this is who we are. This is, we're normal people and you know, we're just like you, or we're slightly different from you, but we're, you know, we're not scary. Um, and allowing people to understand through storytelling is, is enormously significant. If you've read uh, Dustin Lance Black's biography, uh, I mean, he tells uh, in that about how his mother, who was, was intensely homophobic, suddenly came round and and became very, very supportive of, of him and his coming out process, simply because his friends were telling his mother the stories of their life. And, and it, it sort of made her realize that these were humans who were suffering and that they, they were deserving of her sympathy and her empathy and so on. Contact as well, of course. I mean, this is all part of it. Just as I was saying earlier on, it's very difficult to dehumanize somebody if you know them, if you have contact with them, whether that's direct contact or whether that's virtual contact you know, through social media or whatever. That is enormously important, enormously powerful. And, and it requires people to be out and open. And of course, that can be very scary and very challenging for a number of people. But being open about who you are can actually do an enormous amount of good. Quotas is very controversial. It's controversial in economics. It's controversial in society. The good news about quotas is that obviously it forces you to confront your unconscious bias because people tend to say, oh, actually, I, I like to be surrounded by people who think like me. Well, that doesn't work. You need to be surrounded by people who are challenging you. Um, but you know, we, we default to safety first. So quotas actually forces you to challenge your unconscious bias. The downside is, and I think this is a significant downside, if you have in place quotas, you run the risk of just fueling prejudice. I should have got that job. I was the best qualified. They only got it because they're gay, a woman, ethnic minority, whatever it is. And that does a huge, huge disservice uh, overall. And there is a risk that you can actually end up with different forms of prejudice in quotas because, of course, quotas tend to focus on the visible forms of prejudice. So gender and race, both of which are generally, not always, but generally visible, that's where you get the quotas being focused on. Half the LGBT community is in the closet at work. We know this. The LGBTQ plus community is roughly 8 to 10% of the population, but only 4 to 5% admit it in, in the workforce. So, you know, how do you go out and uh, set a quota for the LGBTQ plus community? You're not setting a quota for the LGBTQ plus community. You're setting a quota for the out LGBTQ plus community, which is a subset of the overall community. So there's enormous problems with quotas as well. I think that there is a compromise, which is that you should aim to have 
as much diversity as you can manage, which is still going to be biased towards visible diversity, when you are looking to interview people. If you have diversity in your interview pool, I think that can create diversity in in terms of hiring because it it's at least a step towards challenging unconscious bias, but it, it doesn't go to the full extreme of quotas and you don't have that sort of resentful, they were only promoted because they're a woman or ethnic minority or whatever. Right. Uh, and so that's uh, that's one of the ways forwards perhaps. It's going to remain a controversial topic. For me, I think you're challenging prejudice when we come across it and just being visible, these are some of the best ways that we can work to overcome prejudice. And after all, when we're talking about overcoming prejudice, what is it we're saying? What we're saying at the end of the day is human beings should all be treated equally. It's not that controversial a concept to be selling, I don't think. Right. No, not at all. And, you know, I think that's one of the concerns that I often have when I see minorities, especially when they are challenging. Oftentimes, the challenge is done to win the argument. Right? I, I need to prove that I'm right and you're wrong. And that's, I think, like you talked about, that's where the barriers start to get built up when we make somebody feel so bad about the, their viewpoint Rather than just, like, as you mentioned, just making them a little bit uncomfortable allows them to go away and unpack it themselves. And that's, uh, that's something I think that we, uh, I know myself, I have done this before, especially I think about uh, arguments I've had with John's parents. <laughs> but that kind of being able to, to hold back and just let it happen, let them go think about it themselves, or the same thing for me, maybe I have to think about it myself, can help make change or reduce the prejudice even better than trying to always prove that I'm right. It's always understandable that you know, if you've been a target of prejudice, you are going to react strongly because it's blatantly unfair mm -hmm. and you know and inevitably resentment builds up and and you know you, you can tip over the edge and start you know, shouting at people and, and and being very aggressive about it and so it, it it's understandable that the victims of prejudice are going to to feel very aggrieved of course they're going to feel very aggrieved but i think you know what we need to try and do is think about how can we actually achieve a better outcome in the long term. And that's where I think is you know, this this little bit uncomfortable rather than putting the barriers up becomes so important. Right. So I th thank you for providing some, some resources or tools that the community can use to help yeah, uh, yeah, avoid some of the prejudice that we might have coming our way in the near future. One of the objectives of the Queer Money podcast is to try to get the queer community to start to thrive more, to start coming out of the closet and seeking jobs beyond what are stereotypically quote-unquote gay jobs and to pursue all of the career opportunities that are available to us. Um, but you talk about in your book the risk of, of signaling when a company or a, a leader within an organization shows a prejudice towards one subset where then other marginalized communities might interpret that, well, if he's misogynistic, he's probably homophobic, or if he's racist, he's probably homophobic. And that causes some people to not aspire to pursue careers that they might otherwise pursue or to be as out and open as they might otherwise be, in part because so many LGBTQ people are in service positions as well as retail positions. And many aspire to do more than they currently are, but those are safe industries for us to be in. 
Do you have any suggestions on how we can maybe get the community to start to, to, to push up a little bit more? I think here there is probably a difference between you know, large organizations and perhaps smaller organizations. Because I, I think most large companies, most global companies, get it. They understand, at least the, the senior management understand. I'm not saying for a moment that large companies are perfect. Clearly, they are not. You know, Every company has got room for improvement. But I think that the understanding that human skills are not just important, but increasingly important in the future, that you need to get absolutely the best out of your workforce. You need the right person in the right job at the right time. And you can't afford to get sidetracked by irrelevances. Um, that's understood in, in large companies. So for me, I think that you, for, for someone who's aspiring to look for a different career, it may well be that they end up having to look at the larger organizations, being more likely to have a culture of inclusion within them. And uh, also, of course, to, to having in place systems which can try and tackle prejudice and unconscious bias. And as I said, we're all biased. We've all got prejudice. Mm -hmm. um, you have better mechanisms because you have better resources in a large company. Where I think it, it does become more difficult is in, is in smaller companies, smaller firms, smaller organizations, where your prejudice more easily flourishes, where you know, the personality of the, of the individual manager becomes proportionately more important. You know, if, if you're in a very small business with you know, maybe a couple of managers, then you know, who they are and what they think is going to shape the, the whole culture of that company. And that can be problematic. This, of course, does lead to some problems. And, and I know you've discussed several times the fact that the LGBTQ plus community, for example, tends to congregate in large cities with a higher cost of living. Well, one of the reasons is that larger companies tend to be in larger cities and smaller companies where prejudice is a greater risk are, are outside. But at the end of the day, we are talking about 8 to 10 percent of the population if I can uh, misquote a, a, an old uh, UK sitcom, you're unlikely to be the only gay in the village. And so as you find support online, and you can find support online, as the LGBTQ plus professional network, for example, uh, on uh, Facebook, things like that, as you find support online, you can start to make changes. I'm not naive enough to say that this is all going to be you know, perfect overnight. It's not. But just thinking about the changes that I've seen over the course of my career, when I started working in the financial markets in the early 1990s, believe me, the city of London was a horrific place to work on many levels. It was racist. It was misogynistic. By God, was it homophobic. And I spent most of the first few years of my life in the city of London making sure that nobody knew that I'd been to a state school because there was enormous class prejudice at that mm -hmm. time. Now, uh, that has dissipated, and I would say has, has, you know, a lot of that has gone, not claiming that financial markets are perfect, but it has shifted. So we have made enormous progress, but I don't think we should be naive enough to say that, that we're going to transform society overnight. You know, we, we have a couple of hundred years of, of homophobia to push back against. We're pushing pretty hard, but it's, it's still going to take a lot longer to get to genuine equality and acceptance in the workplace and elsewhere. Yeah, so, I think that's a great recommendation. Uh, but I, I, I'm going I'm to challenge you for a second because I'm going to pull a quote from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Baruch <laughs> Salt, who says, 
but I want it now. <laughs> and I think that's the thing we struggle with, right? We we have, I think maybe like your comment there that we're three times more likely to run from the, or we'll run from the tiger three times faster than we run towards the food. Uh, I'm curious if we have this warped sense of, of how quickly we think that progress can be made because of the amount of progress we've seen happen, right? And do we get kind of trapped in this, I want the progress and I want it now, and because it's not happening now, the world is a bad place? So I, I, there is absolutely nothing wrong with saying, I want the progress and I want it now. Right. And being ambitious and striving, I think, is very important. Marriage equality, case in point, that both in the UK and the US, there were LGBTQ plus groups who were saying marriage equality is too much. Society's not ready for it. Don't push it. It was pushed and society has you know, shrugged its soldiers and said, yeah, what's the big deal? So absolutely, I, I think we, we should should be aspirational. But at the same time, as you say, I, I think that we shouldn't assume that all is for the worst in this worst of all possible worlds if it takes some time to get to where we need to get to. And we have to recognize, yes, it's not fair that, that we have to fight for you know, equal rights with somebody else in a in you know, in a different part of the community. You know that every minority has to be fighting for these rights isn't fair. But I think that the fact that we're making progress is something we should remind ourselves of on a on a fairly you know, regular basis. Sometimes it feels it's two steps forwards, one step back. But you know what? You're still moving forwards in that environment, and that's something that I think we should be celebrating. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thank you for the recommendation to to maybe look at some larger corporations for those who want to do something outside of sales. Uh, I'm sorry, outside of retail and, and service. And just to be clear, there's nothing wrong with retail and service. If, if that's the career you're looking for, that, that, that's, that's more than wonderful. Um, but we know that a lot of folks uh, uh, reach out to us who wish they would or could do more. Um, so we're trying to open up that, that pathway for them. With that in mind, what do you think some of the leading careers or industries will be in the fourth industrial revolution? And how can the LGBT community sort of latch on or take advantage of that? So the first thing I would stress, I've mentioned this before, is you need to be flexible. Now, economists, of course, know absolutely everything that's going to happen in the future. We're just not allowed to tell you. Um, And the issue here is that in a period of structural upheaval and change, a lot of things around you are going to change. Now, in actual fact, you know, this isn't the destruction of jobs. Economists estimate that about 10 to 15% of current jobs won't exist in 20 years' time. And 10 to 15% of jobs that do exist in 20 years' time don't exist today. So that's, you know, that's the upheaval part. But about 50% of jobs are going to change over the next 20 years. So what you do is, is going to be changing around. So if I can give a, a personal example, when I started in the financial markets, I was, a, I was a Japanese economist at the start of my career. And a big part of my job, in fact, about one week a month was spent getting the Bank of Japan's monthly statistical bulletin, this big, 
big book of data, uh, which was posted to me every month. And I would enter those numbers into a Lotus 123 spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> That's a Lotus 123. Lotus 123 was like Excel, but it worked. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and of course, there's no way I do that now. <laughs> now you go to the Bank of Japan's website, you click a button, it's downloaded in seconds. Right. But of but of course, you know, a quarter of my job has disappeared. But now I have to do other things. Now I have to do podcasts, and I have to do television, and you know, I, I do all sorts of other things which I wasn't doing, you know, back in the early nineties. So you've got to have that flexibility. So whatever your career is, you accept that what you're doing today may not be what you're doing tomorrow, and you've got to evolve with it. That I think is the single most important thing when you're thinking about the future. The second thing I would say is, as you're thinking about about careers, try and find something you enjoy, because Jobs are going to be, I think, quite intensive, quite draining, that jobs are going to require more and more of our skill sets, more and more of our intellectual capacity over time. The routine stuff, that's what the robots are going to be doing. So there's less and less routine. There's more and more intensive stuff. If you're not really enjoying it, that's going to be very visible and very obvious to your your co-workers. So You've got to be flexible and you've got to enjoy what you're doing. I'm not saying 100% of the time, but you know, most of the time you've got to be really enjoying what you're doing. With that as your basis, I mean, I think that there are lots of sectors of the economy which are going to be interesting, which are going to be developing, offering opportunities. A lot of what we're going to be seeing is around personalization, I think, whether that's sort of personalization in terms of what you're putting in, you know, artisan crafts or, uh, and so on, or personalizing a service for customers. Human interaction, people don't want to talk to a robot or a computer. They want to talk to other people. So that human interaction is going to be very, very important. Areas which focus on creativity, and this doesn't mean you know, art, for example. You know, I, I failed art at the age of 11 and was told never to pick up a paintbrush again. <laughs> um, but I would still say that, that my job is fairly creative, that I have to think about creative ways of explaining the world economy in a way that engages people and is interesting. And believe me, that could be tough at times, you know, trying to explain you know, European M3 money supply in a way that is interesting and engaging is not an easy task. So you need to to think about ways of finding creativity in jobs, and those are going to be the areas that are going to be building up. Some of the traditional areas that people are assuming is where the future lies are probably not going to be. So people say, we need to learn coding and programming. Well, maybe, but actually there is a fairly large school of thought which says that computers are going to program computers in the future. Because mm -hmm. a lot of coding and programming, as I understand it, is, is relatively routine. And so that's not necessarily going to be the, the jobs of the future. I think we tend to get attracted by the bright, shiny baubles of technology because it's exciting and innovative and, and fun. But as I've been saying, it's not the technology that necessarily is where the future lies. It's, it's how we use the technology that's going to be different. And so trying to steer your career in that direction is, is probably a sensible approach. Yeah, I, I, a lot of what you're, you're saying reminds me a lot of what I remember reading in A Whole New Mind by Daniel Pink as far back as, as 2008. So I think it's, it's interesting to see how that's, that's actually seems to be coming out because we, we read very similar information in Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari as well. So it seems like we should start to get the message and be, be flexible. <laughs> and, 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 think and if about, I could give a recommendation, Dr. Vivian Ming, 
who's a member of the community, has some some great uh, videos, some of which I've done with her. And she's a she's a future thinker. She calls herself a mad scientist. <laughs> she's also a Doctor Who fan, so she you know, she ticks many of the right boxes. And she's a fantastic way of explaining how things like artificial intelligence are likely to to shape the future as well. She's she's well worth checking out. Oh, awesome! And is that on YouTube? Uh, she's on YouTube and various other platforms as well. She's done quite a few TED Talks. And if you just Google uh, Dr. Vivian Ming, you'll you'll come up with all of her work. Awesome. Nice. We'll definitely check that out. So before we wrap up, I want to share, you know, we did a, we often do polls in the Queer Money Facebook group to get a gauge in our community about what they think about various topics or what experiences that they're having. We did a poll for this particular episode and we asked folks, has anyone in here experienced prejudice because of their LGBTQ status and has it affected their finances? And what I think is most surprising about this particular poll is that it's the, and this is no way, shape or form, indicative of people's response to to your book, but it was one of the least responded to polls that we've had in recent history. Uh, we had 12 responses. No, uh, nine people said, no, they haven't experienced this kind of prejudice and it hasn't affected their finances. Three people said that it has. Uh, one person said that they weren't sure exactly at the time. And I'm wondering if the, the lack of response is maybe indicative that people had a, a negative experience and for that matter, didn't really want to engage or, or, or revisit the topic. I mean, this is one of the challenges with prejudice is you know, that the people keep quiet about it. One of the really fascinating things, or fascinating if you're an economist, is the fact that if you look at the LGBTQ plus community, we can do this, this thing called veiled survey techniques, which basically gets people to admit things they don't want to admit to in public. Uh, and I won't go through the detail of it. It's all in the book if you've, if you've got an interest. But that's one of the ways that we know that the LGBTQ plus community is 8-10% of the population when only 4% are out. It's because people don't want to admit to being LGBTQ plus because they feel it, it'll subject them to prejudice. But one of the really interesting things is that people are more prejudiced than they like to admit to. So when you ask somebody, are you anti-LGBTQ plus. They'll say, no, 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 of course I'm not. Because particularly, as I said, in large companies, the social pressure is that you don't admit to being prejudiced. But then when you use the veiled survey technique and, and, and draw it out, actually the rate of prejudice is about twice as high as people will publicly admit to. So people are more likely to be subject to prejudice and less likely to admit to it overall. Hmm. And this is in terms of sort of formal prejudice. But we've we've also got to recognize, I think, that there are forms of informal prejudice that we just sort of accept as being socially normal across all sorts of different minorities. And there's an example that I cite in the book of Simon Mill, who's a former rugby player who moved into finance. And he wasn't out as a rugby player because he felt that he couldn't be and you know, that, that it would cause too many problems. But when he moved into uh, finance, he came out and he had no problems. And you know, his team were very inclusive, very accepting, and, and so on and so forth. But he said, when I interviewed him for the book, that when he'd go out and socialize with his colleagues after work, and they'd be down the pub, and one of his colleagues would be talking about the fantastic date that he'd had the previous night, and you know had a wonderful time, and so on and so forth. Simon felt he couldn't talk about the hot guy he'd just been on a date with. Right. Even though he was in a very inclusive environment, that sort of self-censorship and prejudice was was something that that still came in, and I think we do. You know, anyone who is subject to prejudice has a degree of self censorship, which itself, you know, even if you're in a, what is on the surface a very inclusive environment, is also potentially something which is 
difficult for you in, in your career. In the extreme form, if you're not out at work, you're having to think twice before you use a pronoun. Mm-hmm. You're, you're having to make sure that you edit you know, any kind of casual conversation. It's an enormous strain to go through. And you know, even if you are in a more inclusive society and you're out at work, there is still that degree of self-censorship that comes through. It's not just the LGBTQ plus community. It's, it's women who don't talk about their children because they feel that that's stereotypically female and it'll affect their career. I mean, this sort of thing, it's, it's still this challenge that we face. Right. Yeah. I know that uh, not all of those circumstances you just talked about, but the number of those, uh, we call that code switching. And it's, it's something I think that folks in the LGBT community especially have gotten so accustomed to doing that when you're around certain groups, you are a different person than when you're around another group. And I think one of the other things you kind of mentioned, this whole idea of maybe disguised prejudice, we've talked about something similar to this on the podcast. We have talked about what we call cascading homophobia. And that's where individuals who are, they say that they are an ally, that they're a supporter of the community. But when it comes to making a decision that they have to say yes or no to you on a promotion, a project, a raise, they'd rather say no to you than say yes to the person who is above them, because for whatever reason, there has been a perception that the person above them that they have to explain to is maybe overtly or has subtly said that they are homophobic. And so it's just like, well, I'm going to take the easy path here and say no to you because I can disguise that in, well, you weren't qualified or this just wasn't the right time or we're cutting budgets, all of that. And that kind of rolls down, this prejudice rolls down, even though people say that they are supportive of us. This is a a continual problem, obviously. And with, with any any group, this can be uh, an issue. The signaling effect, an economist would call it, of senior management is is something which can be very problematic. I think in, again, you'd come back to my earlier point, I think in larger organizations where you know senior management are sort of objectively looked at the numbers and do tend to send the right signals, this can be less of a problem. I'm not saying it's not a problem at all. And obviously, in, in a global organization, it can be a problem in some cultures and not in other cultures, because you, uh, you're, you're dealing with different circumstances around the world. In mid-sized organizations and smaller organizations, this can be a very, very significant problem uh, over time. And you know, ultimately, the decisions that are taking, you always tend to have a, an eye up to the next rung of the ladder to see what the, the person above you is going to be thinking. And that that's where I think it, it becomes so important to be challenging the presumptions of prejudice, but also being very visible from the senior management point of view that we don't want to be a prejudice organization. We really, really mean it. There is, I think, one issue here which I, I would bring up, which is that. I think it can be somewhat problematic if you have a perception that the company is embracing diversity because there's a legal requirement that they do. And it's it's a box ticking exercise because that's where this sort of cascading homophobia or racism or whatever is going to come through. What you really need is a genuine culture of inclusiveness and diversity where it's something that is actually believed 
not that you know, we need to do this, otherwise we're going to get sued. And that distinction between companies is, I think, quite significant in terms of the success in, in attracting talent over time. Uh, of course, creating a corporate culture is not necessarily that easy to do. It takes a lot of effort, but then the reward from doing so is considerable. Yeah. I think that's part of the reason why John and I are very cautious when we look at things like the HRC Corporate Equality Index uh, that's used here in the US. And I think that there is a similar index in the UK. You yep. you see these companies, and I'm going to look at financial services just as a slice because John and I are very aware of those companies, that you have a large number of companies that all get this top rating but then you can pretty easily look at the companies and say, well, this company has signed on to the amicus brief for marriage equality. And this company has had a commercial on national television that shows a queer individual or queer couples. And this company, and then you have the pocket of companies that seem to be the ones that are paying the fee to get the B. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think the, you know, the, the, there are signals that you can look at. I mean, this is always the curse of The Economist is that the data on prejudice is, is very, very difficult. There's not a consistent right. methodology. There's no you know, sort of index that I can pull up and plot on a chart for, you know, for, for prejudice over time or anything like that. And so we rely on, on lots and lots of little signals. But actually, those signals, I think, can be actually very powerful over time. So my company uh, actually led the Wall Street amicus brief for marriage equality. And that was a very powerful signal internally. Last chief exec, who, who's just retired, um, you, uh, attended the, the Pride March in a very conservative part of Switzerland. Uh, again, very, very powerful signal within the organization. And it's part of, of building the culture. And you know, I'm not saying you know, my employer or any employer is perfect, but those sort of small signals, which are very difficult to capture in a, you know, a an HRC report, and I'm not knocking the HRC report because it's, it's a valuable tool, right. but you're never going to capture that sort of thing. The chief exec was marching in Lugano Pride is, is not something that you can neatly categorize into an index. Right. Um, but it's those smaller cultural changes which do make such a difference, I think. Well, this has been an, an awesome conversation. And I, I know that, we could go for <laughs> to hours. be honest, John and I could sit there with a pot of tea or a bottle of wine and probably carry on this conversation with you for a couple more hours. So to those of you who have listened to this point, we are, we're really grateful. I would also say it would be very interesting to hear from you, our listeners, whether it's on the Instagram feed or on Facebook, uh, on this particular topic, how do you feel about this? Where do you see this going, uh, this whole idea of us moving into this fourth revolution, industrial revolution, and how you think you're going to prepare or be prepared for it? So it'd be interesting to see what your thoughts are. So thank you very much for spending this time with us. First of all, where can our listeners connect with you if they want to investigate a little bit more about what you do? <laughs> So uh, in my official work capacity, I'm uh, at ubs.com, ubs.com forward slash Paul Donovan. 
and that's got my you know, regular economics, but there's also uh, quite a lot of LGBTQ plus economic content on there, some videos, links to some research we've done about LGBTQ plus investment issues and so on. And in a personal capacity, I'm P Donovan underscore econ on Twitter. Nice. Awesome. Nice. And, and where and all then. can our listeners buy your book, Profit and Prejudice, The Luddites of the Fourth Industrial Revolution? The book, which is which I wrote in a personal capacity, but with the support of my bank, it's available from you know, all of the normal outlets. But if you go to the Routledge website, or for American listeners, that would be the Routledge website, um, <laughs> and you use the code QM25, Queer Money 25, you get 25% off and free shipping. Absolute oh, bargain. Ideal wow. gift for friends and family. Wonderful. Thank you so Thank much. You. We'll, we'll be sure to include that link in the show notes. Um, I know our uh, listeners will appreciate that. So when you buy that book and you read it, please share on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook uh, that you have the book and share your thoughts. It'd be great to continue the conversation um, as this is something that's going to take more than one podcast to solve for our community. We need to continue the conversation and come up with solutions so that we're all protected. So Paul Donovan, thank you so much for the, your wealth of information and your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on and and thank you for the podcast which is which is a fantastic resource for the community. Oh, thank, thank you. you. We appreciate it. How does your bank support the LGBT community? Not at all? For Pride in June or 365 days a year? Capital One proudly supports the LGBT community throughout the year. Maybe it's time to support a bank that supports us. Go to debtfreeguys.com/cafe for more info. Join our movement to build a community of happier, healthier, and wealthier gay men by getting your free copy of The Five Building Blocks of a Happy Gay Life at debtfreeguys.com forward slash happy. Thank you, Paul, for your great book and this wonderful interview. It's a lot to digest, but it's definitely important for LGBTQ people to use history as a guide and how to prepare for what may come with the fourth industrial revolution. To our listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Queer Money. Here's your Queer Money takeaway from this episode. Paul shares a wealth of history and insight in what the LGBTQ community might face in the near future. We encourage you to go to debtfreeguys.com forward slash 252 to get Paul's book, Profit and Prejudice, The Luddites of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Finally, we make the Queer Money Podcast for you, so please email your money questions to questions at debtfreeguys.com or post them in the Queer Money Facebook group. We may answer your question in an upcoming episode. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.